Father, again, we thank you. And we do worship you. That you are holy, that you are almighty. Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption. We thank you that you chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You gave us to Christ. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus came to this earth as the perfect sinless sacrifice, that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have provided salvation for us that is secure, that is sure. Lord, we thank you that you've sent your spirit to convict us, to regenerate us, to make us alive so that we could believe that you granted us repentance, that you're with us forever. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the fact that that you are walking with us, that we are called to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, and in our own strength that is impossible, but with your strength it is possible. And teach us to be dependent on you. It's easy to, in the flesh, to think somehow we can please you, but thank you for your conviction, and that as we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us, and that we can be put back on the path of righteousness walking with you. Lord, help us now to better understand the gospel as we look at 1 Timothy 3. And help us not only to know it, but that it would transform our own personal life as far as sanctification, but also that you'd give us opportunity to share the gospel with someone else. Lord, help us to be bold. We live in a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold, and yet, Lord, we need to be bold for you. And we ask that we would be able to do this for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to look at actually just one verse today. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's going to be verse 16. But to get there, I want to just read a couple verses Again, as we looked at First Timothy years ago, and you know that the first two, two or three chapters, what he's talking about, especially as to uh, what is a woman to be? What is a man to be? You get into chapter 3, what is an elder to be? What is a pastor to be? Uh, what is a deacon to be? He lays down all these requirements, all these expectations. You could sum up, summarize it by basically the word godly. We ought to be godly, godlike. We ought to be being transformed by God. And yet that's an impossible situation. And so in verse 14, he's going to say, this is how you become godly. He says in verse 14, 1 Timothy 3.14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. In other words, godliness. How do you conduct yourself? which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Great, underline that. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Great is the mystery of godliness. He's going to answer for us, how do we become godly? 
By the way, a lot of people have different ways of becoming godly. Some depend on self-discipline to become godly. Others depend on asceticism, giving up. Some depend on the law. We've just gone through a whole series on Galatians. They were thinking somehow that would make them godly. Something go back, let's say not just the law, but the Old Testament sacrifices. Or self-abuse. You know, you ever see anybody walking along on the streets, a lot of times on Easter, on their knees? They abuse themselves, somehow thinking that this is going to be godliness. But Paul says to Timothy, no, listen, remember, what is the, the great, the mystery of godliness? No, it's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we become godly. And really everything in that, actually it's a, it's a hymn, is pointing to Jesus Christ. So we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ today, which is excellent because we're going towards communion. That's how we become godly. I just want you to get this. That is how we become godly, is by walking with Jesus Christ, receiving him, and walking with him. Now, the first thing he says is without controversy. This is one of the few things in the church that is not controversial. Okay? See, there's a lot of things churches fight about. Especially if you get into roles and responsibilities of men and women. Eschatology. You, a lot of fights over things like that. How should we respond to the world? Should we get involved in politics? I mean, you can go on and on. What does the church fight about? But this is something that is without controversy, okay? Or the New American says, common confession. The word is homo logio. Homo, same, logio, word. It's the same thing. It's the same truth. Nobody's going to fight about this. <clears throat> In fact, I would say this. If you're fighting about this truth, you're not a believer. That's why, that's why Paul says it. You can't fight about this truth because this is the truth of Jesus Christ. This is what binds true believers together. All believers agree with this. This is so basic that if you don't believe, again, you're not a believer. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ if you don't believe in these truths. Well, what is the truth? Well, he says it's a mystery of godliness. A mystery. What's a mystery? A mystery is something that is a sacred truth in the Old Testament that was revealed in the New. What we're going to talk about is something that was not understood in the Old Testament. It's a mystery of godliness. What is this mystery? In fact, well, this, let me give, give you one other thought. It was interesting because Timothy, who was in at Ephesus, and at Ephesus they had the great statue and temple of Diana, and there they would have this phrase, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana. And, and so it, it may be that Paul was playing off of that and saying, no, I'll tell you the great mystery. I'll tell you who the great one is. It's not Diana. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The mystery is pointing to the person and the work of Christ. Again, those six stanzas of that hymn that we find in verse 16. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ, God-man, came to this earth and sacrificed himself was buried, resurrected, and is ascended to heaven. That's, if you just want in the nutshell, that's what he's getting at. The mystery of godliness is the fact that Jesus Christ came, <coughs> perfect man, God-like. See, the mystery of godliness is this. The Old Testament knew that a man could be justified by faith, because Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis. But the, the understanding of exactly how that happened wasn't understood until the New Testament. All right, it's justified by God, 
because of faith. But how exactly does that happen? And in the New Testament, what do we find out? The God-like one, Jesus Christ. That's the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ, the perfect one, came. And because we put our faith and trust in Him, (coughs) we can be godly too. It's not because we do certain things that we are godly. It's because we have a relationship with the God-like, the God one. Okay, that's why, that's the mystery. I know it may sound like, ah, what do you mean the mystery of godliness? It's a mystery. How did, how did the Old Testament saints get, how, how did they become righteous? It's like the book of Job. Job asks this, how can a man be righteous before God? How can he, okay, I know that it happens, but how can it happen? New Testament, we understand how that happens. Because the perfect one came, the righteous one came, the godly one came, Jesus Christ, He sacrificed Himself, and as we put our faith in Him, we also become righteous. We also become godly. So it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. As Galatians 3 says, as many of you as as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now again, that baptism is not what we do here. It's not water baptism. He's saying, as you have been placed into Jesus Christ, you've put on Christ, and His righteousness has been transferred to you. That's, that was a mystery in the Old Testament. Second thing is this. Not only is it a common confession, but it's the church's central message. Jesus Christ, His person, who He was and what He did, is the central message of the church. It's, it's not about the church. In, in us gathering even today, it's not about family. Though it's family important, but it's not as important as Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus even said, I've come and in times uh, father is going to be against brother, mother against uh, daughter. Yes, the, ch- the, the family is important, but it's not the critical thing. The church is not about a creed. It's not about a building, though hopefully we're going to build someday if the Lord doesn't return. But it's not about a building. It's not about programs. Though next week we're going to be starting a number of new programs. And programs are good. Programs are supposed to be a tool to help us to grow. That's really why the programs are there. By the way, let me mention one other thing that's happening. I, I failed to mention earlier. The, uh, we are using the Word of Life curriculum, but it's going to be taught during the ABF hour in the uh, South Wing to the teenagers. And I say that because one of the men that's been brought on for as an intern is Kyle Schmidt. I meant to have him stand up today. But Kyle's going to be teaching with uh, Ben Clifford and possibly one other man uh, the, the curriculum of the Word of Life, I mean the Word of Life curriculum to the teens starting next week. So again, you, and by the way, this, this year it's an exciting curriculum. It's uh, talking about end times. Boy, do we need to know about end times or what? Okay, but anyways, but programs, the church is not just about programs. Sometimes I think we forget that. You ever feel busy in the church? Yeah, we don't want to just keep us, ourselves busy. We want to be productive. Uh, the church is not about even people. Now, that sound, may sound odd. What do you mean it's not about people? Well, it is in a secondary sense. The, what is the purpose of the church? To honor and glorify Jesus Christ, right? It's all about him. It's all about Him. That's the central message. That's the core truth. And that's why uh, Paul in, in Corinthians 1 says this, We preach Christ crucified. In fact, in chapter 2 of Corinthians, he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I didn't want you to know anything. All the other things were secondary. All he's saying is, listen, priority number one 
Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, i.e. crucified for us. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. We don't preach ourselves. We're not trying to win a hearing. We're not trying to get our own little kingdom. When it's all said and done, this building is going to go by the wayside and, and we're going to die. We preach Christ. That's the central truth. By the way, that should be the central truth in your life, in, in your own personal life, in your family life. Again, I think sometimes as Americans, because it's, it's easy, we can become comfortable and we can get other things as priority. Paul would say, God would say, the Word of God says what? Jesus Christ is priority. He's the core truth. That's why in Galatians 6, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, it says, God forbid that I should glory or boast in anything but what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, the, that's, what, we, that's what we glory in. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul knew that there was some, preaching, some people preaching Christ, but they were doing it out of wrong motivations. They were actually doing it to actually hurt his ministry. That sounds real odd, but you know what? People can be in ministry for the wrong motivation. People can be doing ministry for the wrong reasons. But you know what Paul said in, in uh, Philippians 1? He said, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Even though people may not even have the right motivation, as long as the truth of Jesus Christ is getting out, so be it. And sometimes we even encounter other Christians or other churches. Their motivations may be incorrect, but if Jesus Christ is being presented correctly, I'm saying correctly, so be it. Rejoice. Because He is the one that... That's why we're here. Christ is the center. Christ is the center. Isn't He the center of your life? I mean, what would be some indicators in your own life that you would say, yes, He is center? Well, what are some indicators? You think about them. You talk to Him. We call that prayer. We get instruction from Him. That's called reading His Word. We care about what He cares about. By the way, He cares about His people. He came to say, you know, when we say that it's not about people, that's not the priority, but we are there, right? I mean, that's... So if you really care, I mean, if, if you really have a relationship with Christ, there should be a concern to, to hear from Him, to talk with Him, to walk with Him, to care about His people. Again, is He the center of your life? When you're making decisions, do you ever ask Him to give you wisdom? Do you find that you get frustrated when you start walking down the path and you haven't been walking with Him? Do you ever get frustrated? I, I mean, I get... At times I find myself running too fast and then I slow down and, and many times it's almost like an audible voice, but it isn't. He says, John, just sit, get the word out and meditate on me. And that meditation always moves to prayer. And it may only be a half hour, you know, it might be, it might be less time than that. And it's like, it's just like, this is how my life... <sighs> You get priorities in line. Yeah, that's right, Lord. I'm, I'm all, yeah, that's right. Those are just immaterial. Those are temporary things. Those are, thank you. See, if he's center of our life, then we're taking directions from the commander. That's what Paul says. We preach Christ. You know, there was once an old church in England. I think I've told you this story a couple of times. A sign out on the front of the building said this. We preach Christ crucified. 
But after time, ivy kept growing, and the last word was obscured. And it just said, we preach Christ. More time went on, and the ivy kept growing. And finally, it only said, we preach. Finally, ivy covered the entire sign, and the church died. But that's how it should be. Any church that doesn't preach Christ crucified actually should die. You mean, Pastor, you would actually actually pray and hope that certain churches die? Absolutely. Not even a question. In fact, <clears throat> I hope our doors close if we never preach Christ. I mean, if we stop preaching Christ, if we stop, if it's just about us in this building, and this, then let us go somewhere else. Let the church die. What Paul does now is he goes on, he says, all right, let me tell you about the mystery of godliness. This is how a person is godly. And it's a portrait of Jesus Christ. As I've said, this is, I think, a hymn. I think this is an Old Test- or a New Testament hymn. Perhaps it's even a creed. But this is how people passed on truth. It's a portrait of our Lord. Or as some would say, this is a summary of the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, every one of these points you can say amen to. If you say, no, I don't agree with that one point, understand that you're saying no to the gospel. The first thing is that God became man. Look at this. God was manifest in the flesh. Manifest in the flesh. If you want to fill in the six fill-ins, this is the presentation of Christ. The presentation of Christ. Over in Colossians 2, if you'd like to turn there for a moment, um, just to see it. Verse 9, it says this. Colossians 2.9. Just keep your hand in 1 Timothy For in Him, that's Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ is the fullness, not partial, fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him who is the head of of all principalities and powers. In Him is, is the fullness of the Godhead. See, He is the pre existed eternal God who became man, virgin conception, incarnation. That's what He's getting at here. That that Christ was presented. God is presented. God was manifest in the flesh. The word manifest does not mean to create. That's real important. Manifest only means to make visible, to make known. He already, he already existed. He's just now known. He, was, he existed from eternity past, right? But now he's made known. That's why, again, that verse in Colossians 2 where it says, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness. He's not a God, he's the God. Or as John 1 verse 14 says, the word became flesh. That word flesh is not fleshly, it means human. He became human. God became, the word became human and dwelled among us. And verse 18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus said, you haven't seen the Father, but if you see me, you've seen the Father. Oh, no, we haven't seen the Father, Father's Spirit, but he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've explained him. That word is exegete. I've shown you what the Father is, who the Father is. So again, we, we believe in uh, the Trinity, three persons, one God. Humanness. The word became flesh. Or as Philippians 2 says, that Jesus Christ coming in the likeness of men. There's a little story dates back to World War II and 
and the soldier has to go off to war and he had to leave, which would be one of the hard things to leave your infant son behind with his, with his wife. And he said, uh, I'll be back. And it had been five years of war and fighting and quite honestly, the mother wasn't even sure if, if the father was ever coming back or if he might have been, you know, if he might have got killed. But she would take out a picture of, of this little boy's daddy and she'd say this, see, that's your daddy. One day he's going to come back home, hoping that he would. One morning the boy said, Mommy, wouldn't it be great if Daddy would just step out of the picture frame? But real reality, that's what Jesus Christ did. He stepped out. Stepped out of eternity. Stepped out of the invisible into the visible. God, human, the God-man. Stepped out. And that is the one of the key truths. See, if you, if you say, no, he didn't come in flesh, then you can't be saved. That's why in 1 John 4 it says this, every spirit that confesses, that proclaims that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That's truth. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. You can determine one, one of the tests of whether or not, you knowing whether a person is, is speaking for God is whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The God-man has come to this earth. Second John 7, let me give you one other. It says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Huge. We need to, we need to be very solid on the fact that our Savior came in the flesh. So the presentation. How about the next one? The perfection of Christ. The perfection of Christ. That He was a sinless sacrifice. The next uh, stanza is uh, justified in the spirit. Or some versions, I think, say vindicated in the spirit. It's interesting. At least my version has a capital S. Do all of yours have a capital S? What's interesting is we're really not sure what he's pointing at. What is Paul actually talking about? If it's a capital S, he's pointing to the Holy Spirit. It could just as easily be a... a uh, not a capital, small s, and that would be pointing to Christ's nature. So either way, there's a, there's a, a distinction. What is, what is Paul trying to get at when he's saying justified in the Spirit? Is he referring to the Holy Spirit or is he referring to Christ's nature? By the way, the word justify means to vindicate, to prove, to demonstrate. The, the word means to be declared righteous. In other words, as Christ came to this earth, he was vindicated. Let me give you both sides here. If he's talking about a small s, he's talking about his nature. He's, he's pointing, Paul's pointing to the fact that he is perfect. Okay? He is perfect. Remember when in, uh, right after his baptism, coming out of the water, and the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. Well pleased. God could only say that to a person who was perfect. This is my son, I'm well pleased. Or Hebrews 4 where it says that Jesus was in all points tempted, or tempted as we are, yet without sin. Perfect, yet without sin. Many, many other passages. First Peter, who committed no sin. Corinthians, who knew no sin. Or as First John says, he was the righteous one. Paul may be referring to that specific point. 
He was justified in the Spirit. In other words, he was vindicated as he walked this earth. He proved that he was indeed God because he was perfect. There was no sin in him. The other side could be this. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And I'll just give you one thought. And that's in Romans uh, chapter 8. It says the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead. And, and in, if it's a capital S, it would be this. Jesus Christ was vindicated because He walked the obedient life. He was crucified on the cross. He was buried. He died. He was buried. And the Spirit of God raised Him, which showed that He was the perfect Son of God. Okay? So it might be either one. In fact, I would prefer this. Since I'm not sure, I'll say both. Okay? But the point is is this. He is vindicated. As they looked at him and, and accused him of many things, now we know that Jesus Christ was the perfect Son of God. He is the perfect one. Now, do you see what we just did here? In just those first two stanzas, it's kind of like the bookends of his life. First stanza, incarnation. Second stanza, the fact that he was declared perfect, that he was resurrected by the Spirit of God. Okay, see, the resurrection proved that everything he said was true because God was pleased. So those first two stanzas are almost like the bookends of his life. His presentation, his perfection. Let's look at the third one, the protection of Christ. Protection, seen by angels. What do you mean seen by angels? You know what's interesting as you study the life of our Lord? is that angels were there. And by the way, the word seen means to observe, but it means to attend to also. Okay, So it's not just viewing, but actually ministering to Christ. But you see this from the start to the finish of his ministry. They watched over him closely. Now, now just think about this. God's Son, perfect fellowship, is sent into the midst of a rebellious world. Do you think the angels were close to him? Do you think the Father instructed you protect at all? I mean, can you imagine what's going on in the angel's mind? The, the one who created the universe, created the earth, created these sinful, rebellious people are now walking among. And you see angels attending. You see angels foretelling his conception. They're at his birth. They ministered to him at his temptation. They strengthened him in the garden. They were at the resurrection, at the ascension. You see this in Acts 1, and we won't turn there because... But all along the way, angels were. In fact, I'll just give you one. Luke 24, if you want. Uh, In the garden, it's it's interesting what it actually says. Actually, you don't have to turn there. But in Luke 24, excuse me, 22, verse 43, it says this. Then an angel, this is as he's praying, saying, Father, if, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Isn't that interesting? Strengthening him. I can see an angel appearing, but it says strengthening him. So again, the protection of Christ, <coughs> seen by angels. You know, I also think, since you're mentioning angels, this... This also refers to the involvement of spiritual warfare. There's spiritual warfare going on in Christ's life throughout his entire ministry. What would Satan wanted to do? Stop him. Stop his purpose. Stop his plan. And angels were there 
protecting and ministering and attending to his needs. Divine approval sent by God. How about the next one? The next stanza. Preached among the Gentiles. This is the proclamation of Christ. The proclamation of Christ. Preached among... what? Wait, the Jews. Uh, preached among the godly. Uh, preached among... No, preached among the Gentiles. <laughs> to the Jew who were the dogs. Okay? What do you mean, preached among the Gentiles? Remember before Jesus ascended in Matthew 28, Go therefore, tells his disciples, to make disciples of what? All nations. So this perfect one who came and provided salvation, protected by the angels, approved by God, now needs to be preached among the Gentiles, not just the Jews. Acts 1.8 says, You shall be my witnesses. And at the very end it says, To the end of the earth, to the end of the world. In other words, it's not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, not just to Samaria, but every living person needs to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. To all. That's the key word. That's the key concept preached among the Gentiles. All. There's no one that's outside of the realm of needing Jesus Christ. And by the way, please don't ever make the mistake, because it's sinful, of saying, you know what? You're beyond reach. You're beyond God's grace. You know anybody that you might have a tendency to say that to? They might be older. They may have rejected many times. And you're at the point of saying, no, I don't want to share again. Just remember, he was preached among the Gentiles. That's why over in Ephesians chapter 4, actually 3, it talks about the mystery of the Gentiles, i.e. that it wasn't, that the church wasn't going to be made up of just, just the Jews, but it was going to be the Jews and Gentiles, that, that God has brought all men into the church, that all were going to be part of the body, those who would receive Christ. So again, we preach Christ. We don't preach a theory. We preach a person. And this person can rescue whomever will put their faith and trust in him. I love that. I just love that thing. The proclamation preached among the... Pre, and the idea of preached is very bold. It's not like, well, you know, maybe he's right. No, this is the truth. It's a, it's a, um, it, is, it is all or nothing. How about the next one? Believe not in the world. This is the power of Christ. See, not only, not only are we supposed to proclaim Christ, but now he shows us that there's power in the gospel, because he's not only heard, proclaimed, but now he's believed. It's believed. The message is believed on. Not only has the good news about Jesus Christ been proclaimed, but it's been embraced. People are actually believing it. By the way, do we believe this? Sometimes I, we, I go through dry times of wondering, you know, are people still turning to Jesus Christ? Obviously, that's true. But Lord, I want to see someone in my own personal life, one in my own family, come to Jesus Christ. Lord, give me the faith to believe that not only is the message supposed to be proclaimed, help me do that boldly, but Lord, people are still believing. So you may have a father or a mother or an aunt or an uncle or a sister or a brother or a really good friend, and you've been praying for that person for many, many years maybe. Maybe you're like George Mueller who prayed for his brother for what? I think it was 60-some years after he got saved. And it wasn't until, I think at his funeral, that his brother, at, at George's funeral, George Mueller's funeral, that his brother came to, to know the Lord. It might be at your funeral. 
that that person comes to know the Lord. But the point is this. Don't give up believing because he was believed on in the world. The world received. Now, not all the world. Many of the world hated him. But many have received him. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me again in Jerusalem, Judea. But notice the, how it's extending. Jerusalem, 3,000 saved. Judea, Samaria. But then, what do you see? Ethiopian eunuch. You see Cornelius, the Gentile. They come to Christ. See, there's, there's power. I like that word power because it's, it's power to proclaim and power to believe. If a person... I do know this, though. I can't manipulate anybody into the kingdom. I cannot say enough things to an unsaved person to get them to believe. Right? Is that true? Don't try. I mean, you should be able to give a good defense. You should be able to give... But as far as actually a person coming to Jesus Christ, when they truly put their faith in Him, that's because God's Spirit worked, gave Him life to believe, and as as the, uh, the passage says, granted them repentance. Now, if that's true, this power is from God, not from me. But that, that's the encouragement. Okay, believe on the world. All right, he was proclaimed, but now he's also believed. God is still working. I mean, how is God working in your life? And how does God want to work in those around you? And again, let's not get just smug and uh, uh, settled and comfortable in our seat and say, you know, I'm just thankful that God called me and my wife and my kids to, you, to Him and, and, you know, many of my grandkids are saved. And, <clears throat> well, not for me, but maybe for you. And, um, and I'm satisfied. No, no, believed on in the world. Now, he, he, wants to, he, wants to, he wants to reach that person who is immoral, ungodly, perhaps maybe a drunk, and he lives just down the road from you, and you've looked at him and said, eh, he's beyond hope. No, no. The power of Christ is that he can transform that life as well. See, true, true teaching, true proclamation produces faith. It's faith from God. What an opportunity. And then finally, the promotion of Christ. He's received up into glory. Okay? Um, the word promotion, again, he, the king of kings. But like Philippians chapter 2, I do want to see because it says that God exalted him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, says this, Because of the sacrifice, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The promotion of Christ. He accomplished God's will for him on this earth, and he was received up into glory, which is again an affirmation, a confirmation that indeed God the Father had divine approval on the Son, received him back into glory. The climax of Christ's ministry wasn't just his life and his death and his resurrection. Please don't forget that it's his ascension. That is the final. That's the, and then you see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. This is what it says. And when he had spoken these words, final words to the disciples, telling them to, that they would receive power. That's verse 8. But in verse 9 it says this. While they watched him, Christ, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfast towards heaven... As he went up, behold, two men stood by him. Hmm, two, two men, angels, in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up in heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up. By the way, that word taken up there in Acts 1 is exactly the same word as received. Taken up from you into heaven 
will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Came to this earth, perfect, sacrifice, he's proclaimed, he's believed, taken up. And the only thing we're waiting for now is for him to what? Come back. Even so come Lord Jesus. See, that's, that's really the summary of the gospel. So, question. Do you believe that he truly came in the flesh? Do you believe that he was justified in the spirit? In other words, he, the, the God was perfect. Seen by angels, ministered by him, uh, the angels. Preach, preach among the Gentiles. What do you mean preach? Proclaim the good news of what? That he died on the cross for my sin, for your sin. And that if a person places their faith and trust in him, you can be forgiven. But not only that, not only was he proclaimed, but he was received, he was believed on. Because the power of God is working in people's lives. It's working in your life if you're a believer, and he he wants to work in other people's lives. And finally, at the end of his life on earth, he was received. Yes, God was pleased with the sacrifice. God is pleased with the plan. And all we're waiting for now is that he comes back. It's interesting in Corinthians... 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to be going there right now as far as at the cup. The last part of it says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Till he comes. See, it's not just about his death. Sometimes we leave him there. No, it's not just about till he comes. He's he's living. He's at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews says this, he's making intercession for you. But he's coming back. There's a story about... one of Donald Gray, uh, Barnhouse's um, friends, he was a Canadian, he, and he moved into a new home. And he was up in this new home, <coughs> second floor, and he looked down and he saw this really pretty rose amongst all these weeds because the house that he bought had not been taken care of for quite a while. And so there was, the whole yard was just weeds, but he saw this really pretty rose. And he, he went down off the second floor and, you know, like trying to plow through and couldn't quite find the rose. He just couldn't find it. I mean, the, the yard was that much of a disaster. Do you ever get your yard that much of a disaster? Hopefully not. But the point is, is the guy actually had to go up in the second story window again and he, he, he kind of looked and he said, oh, okay, there it is. And he kind of got a common point off the fence and he said, okay, it's right there. And so he's able to go down and and he was finally able to find uh, that one beautiful rose amongst the disaster of the yard. <laughs> Picked it, but he couldn't pick it. And what he found was that the root system was actually eight foot away into his neighbor's yard. That rose had and then popped up. And you know, I think that's such a beautiful picture of how the Lord saves a soul and yet leaves you right planted amongst disaster. You know, the world is so chaotic, so corrupt. And yet we bloom for Jesus Christ where you're at, you know. And so, but to really flourish, that rose wasn't getting its nutrients from that yard. It was getting its nutrients from the neighbor's yard. And as it comes to us, you know, there's one verse in uh, Romans 13. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust." Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get our nutrients from the Lord. We need to be rooted in Him. Because you know what? We are left in this world for a moment. Just a moment of time. There's going to be a time when He calls us out. Maybe it will be through the rapture. 
Maybe it'll just be through death. Yeah, we're, we're, this is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're pilgrims. The Bible says we're aliens. But you know what? Sometimes, unlike that rose, we get planted here. We get planted here. And we need to remember, no, no, to really bloom here, we need to be planted there. We need to be planted in Christ. First through salvation, and then as we've been looking at in Galatians, by being led by Him through His Spirit. We need to find our nutrients, our hope. We need to find our truth and what Jesus Christ is saying. Then we'll really bloom. You try to get your nutrients from this world, you will, you, you will just fade. You will wither. You will be a worrisome, depressed, frustrated Christian. But again, if we plan ourselves in what Christ wants for us, then we'll be able to actually bloom for him, really make an impact for Jesus Christ here in this world. I would ask that you would just bow your head right now. Prepare your heart. Do you want to bloom for the Lord? I mean, do you really want to do like Romans says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh? I had a similar incident like I was telling you about the guy with the rose. It happened to me just a couple weeks ago. I went out to one of my uh, raised beds that I had actually tomatoes planted last year in. And this year I had determined I'm not going to even use that particular area, so I just let it grow. And you know what happens, a bunch of weeds. I mean, like this high. And so I hadn't really been paying attention to it all, all summer. And I happened to go over there, and I, and I couldn't see it, but I actually peered over and actually saw on the bottom, I think there was three plants, three tomato plants that had, had you know, fallen the tomatoes last year, rotted, survived the cold, harsh winter, and actually had been growing all summer. Now, they were fighting for everything they had for survival. You know what I did as a gardener? I, I started pulling the weeds. I pulled the weeds. And actually, I'm going to have some pretty good tomatoes here. Well, I've been eating them in the last uh, week. I had forgotten about that area, and weeds had grown up. And what does the gardener want to do? Get rid of the weeds. You know what? It, it taught me something about even faith. If God gives you true faith, it may be tough, it may be hard, it may be harsh, but it will continue to grow, okay? But the other thing that we need to do, and God is going to help you along this way, is we've got to get the weeds out of our life. If you really want to grow, if you really want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, you've got to get the weeds out of your life. What do, what do weeds do? Choke? Try to strangle? Actually try to destroy the plant itself. And it will. And these things were real high, and that, that plant was that tomato plant that I was looking for. Those were only about that high. They had fruit, but it wasn't very good at, the, at that time. But then I pulled the weeds, and I've been noticing they have been growing really, really great. Now we say, well, sure, that's just, an, that's, yeah, right, John. But you know what? You can have a lot of weeds in your own life. And you can be saying, but man, why do I find that the Christian life is so tough? Because if you have the weed of saying, you know what? It's all about the present. And I'm not going to spend the time walking with my Lord. And I'm going to allow sin to just kind of stay there and, and, and just kind of like waddle behind me like a little nipping dog. Then it's going to be very, very tough. You've got to get those weeds out. You've got to make commitments to Christ and say, You are Lord, and I will follow you. He wants to bless your life. He wants you to bloom for Him and be fruitful for Him. But you've got to do the tough job many times of pulling those weeds and saying, Lord, you are more important than it. You are more important. We do that because if you want to bloom, get rid of the weeds.
Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clear gospel that is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Lord, we thank you that you came to this earth as the perfect sacrifice for us. And help us to remember all the lessons of this communion table. In Jesus' name, amen.